0: Good morning. Those of you that know me already know that I'm not a, a sportsy guy. I don't play sports. I don't watch sports. I don't care about sports. <laughs> Why that is is a whole different story. Don't, we don't want to talk about that. But in light of that reality, I thought it would be best to start with a sports example. So you probably have heard of a guy named Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan uh, is an extremely famous basketball player, right? Many regard him as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, For those of you who are already getting a little antsy, like, wait, 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 I actually think it's LeBron James. We've already established, I don't care, okay? (laughs) But because Michael Jordan has this great lore, this great history, there's so much talk about him, his, his achievements, his prowess, and so on, he's become a legend. And so there's lots and lots and lots of stories that have been told, many that have been passed around on the internet or in pleasant conversations with friends who do care about sports. And it's this, there's this one particular one that I've heard enough times that even me not caring, I know this story. And the story is that when he was in high school, he played varsity, but he wasn't doing great and he wasn't very tall yet. And so they busted him down to JV so that he could grow as a player. And some people embrace that part of his story and say, see, look what happened. They sent him down to JV and that stoked this fire in his belly and then he became the greatest of all time, right? Some might even make the case that that motivation was the thing that propelled him to greatness. If he had not been busted down to JV, we would have never had Michael Jordan as we know him today. Now, is that actually true, right? Was it actually necessary that he get busted down to JV so that he would then become this motivated guy who shows up early to practice and stays late to practice and practices more and harder than everyone else and is super intense and takes everything very seriously. And everything is a competition and he must win everything. Would those things not have taken place if he hadn't been busted down to JV? Probably not. If he'd just been a star player from his freshman year in high school, we probably still would have gotten the same Michael Jordan that we got. But what about his actual practice? What about his actual desire? What about his actual fervent excitement about the game? If he didn't have that, if he wasn't a guy who practiced really hard, if he wasn't a guy who saw everything as a competition that he must win, if those things had not happened, would we have had the Michael Jordan that we have today? Probably not. So there are parts of his story, there are parts of that legend, part of that lore that are necessary to the narrative. And some that aren't, but make for a fun underdog kind of story. And this is similar to what we're going to be dealing with today. In today's passage, there's something that's necessary to the narrative that we're being told in the the Gospel of Matthew that we need to grab hold of and understand and see. That Matthew wants us to see, I believe. That we might not see otherwise. That we might dismiss. That we might overlook. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, Uh, We come to you this morning and we bless your name for being our God, for allowing us to be your people. We thank you that you are near to us, that you are good, that you are faithful, that your word is true, that your spirit convicts our hearts of sin, that your spirit illuminates the truth of this word to us, that we might see and understand who you are, what you've done, what you're doing, what you will do. And that we might rejoice and celebrate in the beauty of who you are and what you do among your people. And so we just pray, Lord, as we study these few verses together today, that your spirit will strengthen us, strengthen our face, increase our love for you. That that love would come about because we understand you better. That we would understand your purposes. We would understand your will. That we would understand what you desire of your people and what you have done for your people. And so we just thank you. We thank you this morning for being our God. And so as we come into this room with various distractions and difficulties and pains and sufferings and frustrations and distractions, Lord, we pray that you'll comfort us in our affliction, that you'll be near to us if we are brokenhearted, that you will strengthen us if we are weary, so that we all might together be attentive to you and to your word, and that your spirit might Help us, help us to see and understand you rightly, that our hearts would be filled with joy over who you are and what you've done. So we confess that we love you and that we need you and we could do nothing good apart from you. So be near to us now, it's in Christ that we pray, amen. Okay, so I want us to look at our 12 verses this morning. First, from a what perspective and second, from a why. I wanna just look at the text to make sure that we understand correctly together what is being said And then I want us to consider together why. Why is it being said? So let me reread our passage, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit. So we're in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So this verse begins with this phrase, at that time. Right, this is really just an ambiguous phrase that doesn't give us any specific indication of when this took place. It's kind of a loose phrase, right? like what your grandparents or your parents might do when they're telling you about something that happened in their childhood. They might say, back then, we didn't have remotes, kid. We had to get up off the couch and walk across the living room and turn the dial on the TV, right? It's just a loose kind of phrase. So at that time, who is it? Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. That's who we're talking about. This is not the Herod who was king when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great, the one who had all the male babies under the age of two murdered in the region of Bethlehem in order to try to protect himself from this potential coming king in Jesus. So this is not the same Herod. This Herod Antipas, this Herod the Tetrarch in our passage today is the son of Herod the Great, but that's not really a big deal. Herod had 15 sons from various women and he named them all Herod which I'm sure makes it very easy to call them for dinner, but makes it very difficult for us to parse out the history. right? Like George Foreman, who had five sons and named them all George, not very helpful. But who is he being called? He's being called Herod the Tetrarch. And he's being called that because that's kind of his formal title. He likely would have been called king. That term would have been used by people who wanted to show him respect or show him honor or show him deference or kind of appeal to him, favor him, flatter him. He might've been called a king, but he was not a king. He was a tetrarch, which literally means the ruler of a fourth. So Herod the Great's kingdom was split up into various pieces and this son gets a piece. So he's a ruler over a fourth, the tetrarch. Herod the Great's kingdom was divided up and he gets this area that includes Galilee. And so this Herod Antipas has now heard about Jesus and his fame. Jesus' following is increasing. The things that he's doing are being told and passed to others. Can you believe that he healed my sister? Can you believe that he gave sight to this blind man? These stories are being told, and his fame is growing, and he hears about it. And we don't know exactly how he hears about it or from whom, but that's not the point. The point is he hears about it. And in verse 2, how does he respond to hearing this news about this Jesus, this man who's doing all of these miraculous things. Verse 2 And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so, verse 2 starts with this idea that he said to his servants, That would have just been the people of his court, the people that were near to him, either relationally or socially. The word servants here is merely used to indicate he was talking to people of lower status than him, which literally would have been everybody because he's in charge. Herod declares, this is John the Baptist. He hears about Jesus and he does not say, is this the Messiah that my people, these just Jewish people have been talking about? No, he says, nah, this is, this is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's, now, when he says raised from the dead, he's not trying to somehow affirm the resurrection that the Jews believe. He's not trying to affirm the resurrection at the end of days. He's just being superstitious. And he's saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why all these miraculous things are taking place. It seems perhaps that his conscience is being pricked a little bit over the way that John the Baptist was killed, which we're about to hear about. Because now he's rejecting Jesus as the Messiah in spite of clear evidence from the reports that he would get. And he's suggesting that John the Baptist has come back to life. He's saying... What's what's going on with this Jesus? I'll tell you what's going on, it's about me. These circumstances are about me. I've done something, John the Baptist is coming. He's coming back to get me. And so verse number one and verse number two are the point of our passage. The point of the passage is Herod Antipas hears about Jesus and he says, definitely not the Messiah. This is about me, this is John the Baptist coming back. That's why miraculous things are happening. And that's the point of our passage. The possibility that this was the promised Messiah doesn't really even cross his mind. His conscience and his pride collide together and he comes to this ridiculous conclusion that it's all about him and it must be John the Baptist. But verses three through 12, the rest of our passage is kind of a flashback. It's kind of a backstory to what's going on and why he would respond this way. So verses 3 through 12 are here to kind of explain and give us more clarity and better understanding what's going on in these first two verses. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So, Herod, Antipas, this Herod that we're looking at, has arrested John the Baptist and thrown him in prison, which we heard about earlier in the book of Matthew. We didn't hear who did it, we didn't hear why they did it, but we know that he's been imprisoned. Why does he throw him in prison? Matthew says, for the sake of Herodias. And who is Herodias? Matthew tells us that it's his brother Philip's wife. But the reality is, Herodias isn't Philip's wife anymore. Herod, Antipas, divorced his wife, And Herodias divorced her husband, Philip, so that these two could get married. Herod Antipas went to visit his half brother, Philip, another one of the sons of his father, Herod the Great. And while he's there, he meets this guy's wife and he's like, She's cute. We seem to get along. Hey, do you want to just shut these marriages down and you and me make this happen? She's like, That sounds great. So she's not Philip's wife anymore. And in Jewish culture, it would have been impossible for a wife to divorce her husband, but Roman law allowed for it, and so she was able to divorce Philip. And so Matthew here refers to her as Philip's wife because her divorce and subsequent remarriage are unlawful in the eyes of God. And so Philip is her rightful husband, and that's how Matthew characterizes her. Now, John the Baptist's objection to this would have been widespread, and would have had much support in the conservative Jewish community of this place. John would have said publicly, this is not right. What this man and this woman have done is wrong. This man who leads us, this man who's in charge of our area, he's breaking the laws of God. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20 make it clear this kind of behavior is unacceptable. And John's fear of the Lord far outweighed his fear of man. He wasn't worried. He wasn't fearful about what might happen to him if word gets back to Herod and Herodias about his objections. He didn't fear. Even this powerful man who could do anything he wanted. That'd be like having dirt on Hillary Clinton today and speaking it publicly. That historically hasn't gone well. (laughs) The same would have been true for John the Baptist. He would have known to speak this way is going to get me in trouble. But who do I fear? I fear the Lord, I do not fear man. And so I will speak the truth of my God. I will call out sin where I see it and I will pursue faithfulness and holiness. And so John was persistent in his objections. He didn't just like write one little letter and say, hey guys, your marriage, it's not great. Anyway, if you wanna talk about that, let me know. He didn't do that. He was persistent in his objections. And we know that because the verb here is an imperfect one. John had been saying, this was an ongoing thing that he was doing. He would have been publicly rebuking this relationship. The telling that he did probably wasn't in his court to his face. It was probably to the public. It was probably to the people saying, what our leader is doing isn't good and word would get back to them. John had been saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. And then verse five, Herod, and though he, Herod, wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So Herod here wanted to put John to death, but he didn't. Why not? Because he feared the people's reaction. He was afraid of what the people would do because they loved John the Baptist. They thought he was a prophet from God and they were right. And he was fearful that if he did something to this man, that he might, there might be some sort of uprising. Herod Antipas' reputation was not good, partially because of this marriage and the, and the stirring up of the people that John the Baptist would have created. But not only that, his divorce and remarriage wasn't just a problem with the local Jewish community, it was also a political hot button. His former wife, the woman he was married to before Herodias, the one that he divorced so that he could marry her, she was the daughter of a neighboring king And that marriage was likely one of political gain and political strategy. And when he divorces her, her father doesn't like that. He doesn't take kindly to Herod divorcing his daughter. And so he comes with war against Herod Antipas and he wins. He destroys Herod the Tetrarch's army, but Rome intervenes. Rome says, whoa, 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 this is our boy. Won't you just back on up? And so this father... Goes back home, having won the battle, but he isn't able to depose Herod. He isn't able to kill him because Rome has his back. And so Herod Antipas' reputation was not good, politically or socially. It was only because of the intervention of Rome that he wasn't removed. He knew that his reputation and favor with the locals, the Jews, would have been negatively affected if he just killed John the Baptist like he wanted to because they held him to be a prophet. And so where John the Baptist fears the Lord, Herod Antipas fears man. He doesn't fear the Lord. He doesn't care of the things of God. He's afraid of what people think. He's afraid of what will happen to him in the eyes of the public. Verses six and seven. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So Herod's throwing a big party to honor himself. Now, if it's actually a birthday, like we think of birthday, the, an anniversary of his birth, or whether it's a celebration of him coming to power as his birthday is coming into his rulership or whatever, we don't know, that doesn't matter. The point is he's celebrating himself. There's a big party that, which would have been super normal. There would have been a lot of eating, a lot of giant feast, a big banquet, lots of wine, rich food, and many guests would have no doubt been drunk, and it certainly seems that Herod Antipas would have been inebriated as he celebrated himself. And he would have wanted to entertain and to impress his guests, and so one of the entertainments would have been common would be to have women come and dance for the men. The biblical text here doesn't tell us specifically, but it's very likely that this dancing would have been seductive or sensual in nature. But what the text does tell us is the identity of this particular dancer. It's the daughter of Herodias, his stepdaughter. So this young girl was the product of Herodias' first marriage to Philip. Philip is her dad. Herod's half-brother has fathered this girl and now he is her stepfather. Now it seems likely that the girl, most scholars agree this girl is young, anywhere from 14 to 18 years old. Some say a little younger. But based on the interactions between this mother and daughter that we see here in a couple of verses, it seems like her mother certainly encouraged this and was okay with it. And it seems very obvious that Herod was okay with it. So here you have a mother and a stepfather who say, you dancing naughty in front of a bunch of men. Excellent idea. This is a good thing. What terrible things come from parents who use their children for their own gain. So the girl dances. Everybody loves it. Herod is particularly pleased, and he desires to show off a bit. In front of everyone, he makes this big promise. He makes this oath to give her whatever she asks for. Your dancing has pleased me and my guests anything you want. This same story is recounted in the Gospel of Mark as well. And in chapter 6, we are told that he offers her anything she wants, up to half of his kingdom. Why would he do such something so ridiculous? Why would he offer this little girl up to half of his kingdom, just because she made him happy. Well, he, he desires to be seen as strong, as powerful, as wealthy, as maybe even philanthropic. He wants to be seen as a great man. What we're seeing is his pride and his arrogance and his fear coming out. What better way to show that you're wealthy than to say, I'll give you half my wealth. I'll just give it to you. Because I'm so wealthy that to give up half of my wealth, I'm still wealthy. I'm still great. I still have loads of money. Imagine if Elon Musk today tweeted out, I'm giving half my net worth to some 17 year old girl. Be like, why? That's weird and creepy. Why are you telling us? And how much would he be worth after he did that? He'd still be worth $128 billion. After he gave away half his wealth. And that's the kind of show that Herod is hoping to make. I'm so wealthy, I could just give half of it away to this little girl, and I'm still as rich as I could possibly want. So, while what he wanted was to demonstrate benevolence or wealth or power, what he actually showed was that he fears man. He fears man and not God. So, how does the girl respond? She's just received the offer of a lifetime. Verse eight, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So what does this girl do when she receives this incredible offer? Does she say, I want jewelry, all the jewelry you've got and all the incredible clothing, bring it to me. I want all of it. Does she say, I want a giant mountain of gold that I could dive into like Scrooge McDuck. I just want to... Does she take him up on his offer that we hear about in the book of Mark? Does she say, that sounds great. Sign over half your stuff to me. That sounds fantastic. No. She says, mom, what should I do? And what does mom say? Ask for John the Baptist's head. This woman who allowed her daughter to dance for the drunken men of this debaucherous kind of celebration. This woman who, like her husband, is very concerned with what others think of her and what others say about her. She wants the people to know that what happens? Here's what happens if you cross me. If you speak ill of me and my life choices in public, here's how it's gonna go for you. She wants people to fear speaking against her and her divorce and her remarriage. She wants to send a message. Not only you better watch your mouth talking about Herodias, she also wants to send a message so that everyone will know who really pulls the strings here in the court of Herod. So at the prompting of her mother, this young lady tells Herod, the Tetrarch, that she wants John the Baptist's head removed from his body and brought to her on a platter. Verse 9. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So first of all, Matthew calls him king here. It's a little bit more of a respectful honoring term than Herod the Tetrarch. And he says that he was sorry. Why? Why was he sorry? It seems weird. We just heard a couple of verses ago that he wanted to kill John the Baptist. And now this girl's demanding it. She's demanding that he do what he wants to do. Well, obviously, for the same reasons in verse five, he's fearful. He fears the people. He fears the court of public opinion. But in Mark's account, there's more color and a little more understanding that's given about Herod's attitude towards John. Mark chapter six, verse 20 For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, liked John somehow. There's something about John that he liked. He was somehow intrigued by this man. The truth was somehow appealing to Herod. John the Baptist speaks truth and Herod finds it perplexing. He doesn't understand what John the Baptist is about or what he's saying or what he means, but something about it is appealing. Something is intriguing to him. The very character of John the Baptist is somehow appealing to Herod. And so he heard him gladly. Herod was glad to hear this guy speak. Something's going on with this guy. I find him interesting. But now... Here he was caught in this web of his own making. He's just made this boastful and prideful promise to this girl thinking that it might cost him some money. But instead he finds that what she's asking of him is the very thing that he feared because he was a weak man. And what he feared the most was looking weak. To go back on this promise that he never should have made in the first place would make him look weak. And so he cannot do that. He must give in to this request that he both wants and doesn't want to do. Now, decapitation, the cutting off of a head as a method of execution, was against Jewish law. So was executing someone without a trial. Both of these things he would be doing. And he knew that that would not go well with the Jewish culture that he lived in. The people that he ruled would not put up with this. So here's this guy, this is a side note. Here's this guy who's mostly concerned with his own reputation. He's mostly concerned with with how people perceive him. He's mostly concerned with how he'll be viewed by the people around, so concerned about his own name. We would never have heard his name if it weren't for his connection to John the Baptist, if it weren't for his connection to Jesus Christ. The thing he feared the most is absolutely true. This man is nothing of note. He is a weak, foolish, prideful man who fears not the Lord and fears man. And ironically, it was his fear of man that caused him to not kill John the Baptist. And now it is his fear of man that's going to cause him to kill John the Baptist. He both doesn't do it and does it for the same reason. Verses 10 and 11. He, Herod, sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Herodias, the mother of this girl, did not just want John silenced. He'd already been silenced. He'd been arrested and thrown in jail. He He had no voice in the public the way that he once did. What she wanted was a trophy of her victory over this naysayer. And now, With the help of her naive daughter and her spineless husband, she had it. She had the trophy that she wanted. So finally, verse 12. The main detail that's missing from the account from Mark is this verse here. Mark doesn't tell us this, Matthew tells us. And his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now, why? Why did they go tell Jesus? They followed John the Baptist. Did they go to tell Jesus because we just lost our leader, we'd like a new one, we'd like to follow you now? We don't know. Did they wanna warn him? Hey, Jesus, here's what happened to your boy. Things aren't going well. Keep your head on a swivel. Did they go to him because they wanted sympathy? Maybe Jesus can offer us some comfort in our grief. Did they hope that Jesus might work a miracle and be able to bring John the Baptist back to life, put his head back on somehow? We don't know. We don't know. We know that they took John the Baptist's body and buried it and that they went and told Jesus. There's two things we can glean from this verse. First is chronological. This helps move the story. Jesus hears about this story. Next week, we're gonna hear about Jesus's response to hearing about this. He hears about what Herod thinks. He hears about John's death. And that connects us to the story that we'll hear of the feeding of the 5,000. The second thing, though, is a practical thing. What do these disciples do? What do John the Baptist's followers do when the man they follow is killed? What do these men do when tragedy comes? What do these men do when their hope is shaken? They go to Jesus, they run to Christ. And church, I hope that we will do the same. I hope that you and I, when things go bad, that our response is to go to Jesus and talk to him about it. I hope that we follow their example when calamity comes our way. So that's the what. That's the story. Herod hears about Jesus, comes to the conclusion it's John the Baptist come back to life and we hear the story about why he would think something weird like that. But why? Why is this passage here? Why does the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to share this narrative with us? Because it genuinely seems plausible that this entire story could be removed, and it seems like we might not miss much. We could easily go from the end of chapter 13, where the people of Nazareth and Jesus' hometown are rejecting him, and move right into the feeding of the 5,000 and not miss a beat. It would be fine. Why should we care? what Herod thinks about Jesus? Why do we need to hear the story of a mother and her husband exploiting their daughter for personal gain? Well, there are three different things that I want for us to consider together that we're being shown with this passage today. Tried real hard, by real hard, I mean for 45 seconds, I tried to come up with some alliterative way to to come up with these three topics. And then I said, nah. Number one, this passage gives us some historical closure. Number two, this passage is some, has got a lot of prefiguring of Christ, pointing us toward the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death. And then third, and I think most importantly, is that this narrative is necessary for the gospel. This is a necessary narrative for the gospel. So let's talk about each one of these three real quick. Number one, historical closure. Matthew has been sharing with us the story of John the Baptist piecemeal. Little bits about John the Baptist have been dropped throughout his gospel. Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist comes on the scene preparing the way of the Lord, right? He comes out of the wilderness wearing his weird goat's hair suit and eating his his nature's valley honey and locust bar, And he comes baptizing people, and ultimately he baptizes Jesus. One chapter later, in chapter 4, we hear, because Jesus hears, about John's arrest, which is the arrest we're talking about today. We hear that John has been arrested, and the word of that comes to Jesus. Then later in chapter 9, we hear about some of John the Baptist's disciples coming to Jesus and asking him questions about fasting. Hey, why your guys not fast and we fast? And Jesus explains that to them. And then in chapter 11, we see that John, who's still in prison, hears about the things that Jesus is doing, and they don't line up with his own thoughts about what the Messiah ought to be doing. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him about this to ask him, are you really the Messiah? Are you really who I thought you were? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Because Jesus wasn't doing what John and many others thought that he should be doing. They thought that the Messiah would come and conquer the wicked nations of the world and reign in judgment over all the earth. But that's not what John was hearing Jesus was doing. So he sent his boys to ask Jesus about it. John thought that Jesus wasn't behaving like the Messiah, but it's a good thing he wasn't. It's a good thing John was wrong. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, was telling them, this is a twofer. I'm coming now to bring salvation to the world. I'm coming to be the sacrifice that's required for your sin. I'm coming to be the perfection that is required for you, the holiness and righteousness that's required of you. I will accomplish through this life. I will be rejected, I will be arrested, I will be beaten, I will be crucified, I will be killed, and I will come back on the third day. And once that work is done, then I will come again to do the things you think you're thinking about. Then I will come to conquer the nations and sit in judgment over the world. And so we should be glad that John the Baptist was wrong. And so now here we see the final installment of Matthew's narrative about John the Baptist here in chapter 14. And so part of Matthew's purposes are to conclude this narrative, this prominent figure in the story of Christ, John the Baptist, the last prophet, who comes to make a a way for the lamb that's coming. Matthew's wrapping up the story. So that's one. Two, this prefiguring of Christ. We see a lot of connections and similarities between this story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus. And it's no accident Matthew, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is pointing forward to what's coming in Christ. John the Baptist was popular among the people. Jesus was popular among the people. John the Baptist was arrested and imprisoned by a weak, fearful ruler. Jesus was arrested and imprisoned by a weak, fearful ruler. Herod hears of Jesus, says, this man's been resurrected. This man's come back to life. He got his identity wrong, but he's correct about the resurrection. This man he speaks of will be resurrected. John the Baptist broke no laws, and yet he was arrested and executed. Jesus broke no laws, and yet he was arrested and executed. This weak ruler, Herod, who feared man and not God, put the fate of John the Baptist in the hands of the people when he offered this girl whatever she wanted. Pilate puts the fate of Jesus into the hands of the people when he says, choose whom you will set free, Jesus or Barabbas. Herod was sure that this girl would choose something else, but he was wrong. Pilate was sure the people would choose to set Jesus free and to execute Barabbas, but he was wrong. Once that girl was given this choice and she chooses to behead John the Baptist, Herod had to go through with it for fear of the people. Once the choice was given to the people about who to set free and the people choose Barabbas and to crucify Jesus, Pilate had to go through with it for fear of the people. Once John the Baptist was dead, his disciples took his body and buried it. Once Jesus was dead, his disciples took his body and buried it. This story points forward to Jesus. Matthew is using this narrative to close up the story of John the Baptist, and he's using it to point forward to what John the Baptist was preparing for. John the Baptist prepares for Jesus. John the Baptist's story prepares us for Jesus. So that's the second. And the third, and I believe the most important, is that this narrative is necessary. It's necessary for the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, the point of this passage back in the beginning is verses one and two. We get all of this story about Herodias and her daughter and the dancing and the head on a platter and all of that. But the point is verses one and two, Herod hearing about Jesus, rejecting who Jesus is and instead saying, this is a man that's about me. Herod Antipas rejecting Jesus and who he is, is the point of the story. He hears of this fame. He hears of these miraculous deeds. And he dismisses the idea that he might be the promised Messiah. He would have known about the the expected Messiah. He lived among Jews. He immediately determines, this is about me. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And this is the point. Him rejecting Jesus. Because we just heard at the end of chapter 13 another story of Jesus being rejected in his hometown in Nazareth. Both the Nazarenes, just the common people, and the king, Herod, Antipas, Herod the tetrarch, the man in charge, both of these groups have rejected Jesus. Matthew's doing something with these two narratives. He is doing something to show us that rejection of Jesus is a necessary part of the story. He's doing something called a merism, which is the idea of taking two or more parts of a thing and talking about them to mean the whole thing. So like if you tell somebody a story that isn't true and they believe you and somebody says, did they believe you? And you say, oh man, they totally bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. That's a merism. That's saying, like a fish who might take the bait, he's taking the hook, he's taking the line, he's taken the sinker, he took it all. Or if you're at your house looking for your car keys, unsuccessfully, I don't know if that happens to you, it happens to me. And you're looking, and your spouse goes, where have you looked? I have looked in every nook and cranny of this place which isn't true because my wife finds it in like 14 seconds. That's not the point. The point is every nook and cranny means I've looked everywhere. And that's what Matthew was doing. Matthew was saying the people of Nazareth, his own people rejected him. The leader of this area rejected him. That is part of the whole story. This is a necessary component of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is rejected. And we ought not to miss it. We ought not to overlook it. His rejection is necessary. Later in Matthew chapter 21, we're gonna hear Jesus pointing this very thing out when he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, speaking of himself. I will be rejected and yet I will be rejected the cornerstone upon which all of this comes, all of this is built. His rejection is necessary. Why? Why is it necessary? Because if he is not rejected, then he is not arrested. If he is not arrested, he is not beaten. If he is not beaten, he is not crucified. If he is not crucified, he is not killed. If he is not killed, he is not buried. And if he is not buried, he does not resurrect. The rejection is necessary. And he knew it. And he told them from the beginning, this is the way it's going down. I will be rejected. I have come to rescue you and I will be rejected. And that rejection will lead to your salvation. And so if this savior, if this Jesus was so rejected, so despised, so unloved, what should his followers expect? What did John the Baptist expect? He expected what he got. He knew that he would be rejected. He knew that he would be facing some horrible punishment for speaking the truth. It cost him his life. It cost Jesus his life. So what do we hope for, church? What do you and I expect as followers of Jesus? Do we expect to be rejected do we expect to be unloved, made fun of, persecuted? We should. Or do we hope and expect that we're going to be esteemed, that we're going to be held up, look at what a great person this is? Is that what we hope for? I'll confess that's what I hope for sometimes. I hope that because I am good, that I will be loved. But Christ is clear. Suffering is part of the deal. Being rejected is part of the deal. Faithfulness to the truth of God costs everything. If you're not a believer in this room, if you don't love and trust in Jesus Christ, let me tell you, this is what you want. This is what your heart yearns for to be loved, to be accepted, not be rejected. To understand and embrace the reality that this world will reject us, will persecute us, that suffering is a part of the deal, sounds bad. But the reality is that should give us great hope, knowing that the king of the universe has accepted us and not rejected us. He has come and been rejected on our behalf that we might be accepted by the Father, that we might be a part of his kingdom, that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. So if you're an unbeliever in this room, come to Jesus. This is the only place where real acceptance will be found. It's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. And yet he gives it as a free gift but we have to count the cost because it costs you your whole life. It'll cost you everything, but that everything is nothing compared to the joy that is found in being accepted by our God, being paid for by this savior. Jesus told us just a few chapters ago in the Sermon on the Mount, he said it, "'Blessed are those who are persecuted "'for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" The second part of that sentence tells us where the joy is, where the good thing is. You're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing greater than being accepted by our God. And Jesus is going to tell us in a couple of chapters here in the future that we'll get to. Those who would come after me must take up their cross and follow me. Why? Why is this true? Why should we, as Christians, be prepared to gladly endure suffering, to gladly be persecuted? Why should we be willing to follow Jesus into this rejection, to be willing to take up our cross to follow him? Because those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ have not just been saved from the wrath of God against sin, although we have, We've not just been declared righteous and holy because of the spotless lamb who laid down his life, although we have. We have been adopted into his household. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. What counts for Christ counts for us. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Persecution will come, sufferings will come, Heartbreak will come and yet nothing to be compared with the joy of knowing Christ, of being counted as a son or a daughter alongside him. Rejection in this life is to be expected, Jesus tells us. But the joy that comes when we get to sit at the table and look in the face of our glorious savior is worth 10,000 persecutions, 10,000 sufferings. And we, Christian, should live our lives in this knowledge. In the light of this knowledge that sharing in this necessary part of the gospel, this being rejected, sharing in his rejection is just another confirmation that we're going to bask in the warmth of his glory when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and bless you. We bless you for doing what needs to be done, for giving us your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you have come. We thank you that you've come and that you've lived a life that was free from sin so that your righteousness earned would be our righteousness. We thank you that you were rejected and that you were crucified and killed to take the wrath of God against our sin upon yourself. And we thank you that you did not stay dead. That just as we share in your righteous life, just as we share in the punishment paid by your death, we will also share in your resurrection. And so we thank you. We thank you that you are good and that you've done this for us. And so let us eagerly await your return and let us not be fearful and anxious. Let us not fear man, but fear you and know that suffering will come, heartbreak will come, difficulty will come, rejection will come, persecution will come, but Jesus will come. So we thank you for being our God and for allowing us to be your people. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Christ, amen.